This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What I remember most about the summer of 2017 is the six days I spent on a vacation in Barcelona. I was tired and in need of a break and decided to spend my days climbing the various hills that surround the ocean-kissed capital of Catalonia while listening to searching and probing conversations on my favorite podcasts on being with Krista Tippett and Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. It was on day two of my trip that I found myself in a flood of tears atop Montjuic, which I had climbed for its castle and the 360-degree views of Barcelona. I had been listening to Brene Brown in conversation with Oprah about shame, and just as I arrived at the top of Montjuic, Brene Brown said, shame can't survive the light. Many of us have an intimate and ongoing relationship to shame, and indeed shame forms part of a very public conversation about what it means to be queer in the world. And until my conversation today, which is with social worker and psychotherapist Rahim Thawar, I thought I had a pretty good grasp of what shame is. I was wrong. I wasn't aware, for example, of how shame really operates, nor how it prevents the radical intimacy necessary for our collective liberation. So buckle up. Our conversation today explores how shame thrives on white supremacist ideas of desirability, how we learn to live with shame's imprint and residue, and the four defensive behaviors we exhibit to separate us from our shame. Rahim also shares why attempts to love ourselves before we can love anyone else will always leave us wanting, and says that contrary to the dominant culture's insistence that shame is a problem for the individual to address in isolation, we must learn that love for yourself only develops in positive relationships with other people. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Rahim Thawar. Rahim, thank you so much for joining me for a conversation on Busy Being Black. I'm a big admirer of your work, and so I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for having me. Um, I've enjoyed following your work for a little while, particularly uh, your little dance videos that you put out every now and then. (laughs) They're getting more frequent. Um, And I don't know why. I think it's because I was having a conversation last year with someone about this kind of collection of writing I'm working on called The Dancing Boy. 
and it doesn't have any kind of like official shape or form at the moment, but it's just kind of these, these poems and essays I've been writing over the past couple of years that are kind of all have to do with this kind of the reemergence of myself or the kind of younger version of myself who felt a little more free. And what do I do to mm-hmm. kind of cultivate that? And so dancing has always been a part of that, right? I'm not a professional dancer, but I'm someone who, for whom movement um, means mm. a lot. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great context starter for talking about anything mental health because there's a kind of joy and freedom that we think about when we think about children and dancing. And I think we spend a lot of our adult lives trying to access that and recreate that. So as you know, uh, I like to open my conversations uh, with the same question. How's your heart? My heart is feeling open. It's feeling full. Um, I can't say this for most Mondays of my life, but I'm starting my week off with optimism. Um, I saw my family yesterday and it wasn't conflict ridden, which it often can be. And I'm just grateful for the small movement we've been able to make. Um, So I'm starting my week off with gratitude in my heart and hopefulness. You've been doing a lot of work around shame. And so I thought we could start our conversation off there. Um, but first, I want to know what drew you to, to, to social work and to therapy. Oh, it's a big question. Um, a number of years ago, probably about 15 years ago, when I was in my undergrad, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And I thought, hey, it could be so nice to mold and shape the lives of young people. I had a favorite teacher and I thought, oh, I want to be that favorite teacher for somebody else. And then I took a couple of courses um, where I really got interested in clinical work, but I also was quite interested in social justice. And I thought social work and being a therapist through social work education would be ideal for me. And it has been. So I made that decision quite a while ago. And I have now been a therapist for over 10 years. Um, And, you know, some people go into private practice therapy right away. I spent the bulk of that the last 10 years um, being in nonprofit organizations, working with gay men, working with people affected by HIV, working um, in LGBTQ2S communities, and working with immigrants and newcomers to Canada. Um, And that's really strengthened my ideas about, you know, mental health at the intersection of systemic oppression. And I, and I really think like social work has brought me that lens. So I'm appreciative of that, that field for that, um, just for that possibility. I think it might be helpful as we move into this conversation about shame, if we can, is there a way to define shame? Like, is there an agreed upon definition for shame? I think, There might be slight variations, but overall, people talk about shame as the feeling you have about yourself um, as an an inferior individual. So you come to see yourself as bad, as flawed, as deficient, and usually you have adopted somebody else's lens, an external lens. So it could be a particular person. So it could be the perpetrator of violence. It could be, um, you know, if if you've been a victim of abuse, it could be your abuser or the perpetrator. It could also be, you know, 
white supremacy, for example. So it could be a larger system. So when you come to see yourself and evaluate yourself negatively through an external gaze, that often is an, that is often is an experience of shame or how shame travels and manifests itself. I think we think about there's shame that can be harmful and toxic and immobilizing, you know, where you withdraw, you don't get along with anybody, you really hate yourself. And then there's also smaller kinds of shame where you feel a bit discouraged, you feel a bit shy, you feel a bit embarrassed. Or maybe, you know, you asked somebody an inappropriate question and then you felt a bit ashamed and then you learn from that. You know, so that in that way, shame can be a learning tool. Um, it needs to be distinguished from guilt because guilt is usually your moral compass. It lets you know you did something bad and then you can, you can do something to rectify it. But often when shame kicks in, you're thinking, oh, I'm an awful human. It's me that's the problem. At the risk of stating the obvious, why are gay and queer men of color particularly vulnerable to shame? Well, you know... I, so, okay, if we talk about queer and trans people outside of race for a moment, at a young age, we're all, I think, anticipating some kind of rejection. Um, and we've known for decades that even though people are coming out younger and there's more representation on t television series about us and our stories, the experience of coming out is still pretty hard. And that is because we anticipate rejection at an early age. And if you're anticipating rejection, you have this idea implanted in you from a young age that your difference makes you inferior and it might make you not worthy of love because that's what rejection is at a young age. And before we even put language to our sexuality, we're thinking about how our gender expression might not fit the stereotypical norms of what it means to be a boy or a girl. And for that, we're hypervigilant to fit in. And this constant idea that we need to modify who we are or people will see us or they'll see the real us and won't love us or won't like us, it's like, it's the genesis of shame, I think. And when you add being of color on top of that and, you know, being from the global north, I don't know what it's like everywhere, mm. you know, but like you're in the UK, I'm here in Canada. We grow up learning very early on that like white is beautiful, that European bodies are like the ideal. Um, I know from my experience, I grew up with lots of um, girlfriends around me and they were all of color. And there was a sense that like, if you dated a white man, then somehow this was a marker of progress. Or if your friends weren't only brown or black people, you somehow had broke out of this enclave. So without having the language for it then, what we were saying was proximity to whiteness is a symbol of progress. And if we believed that then, what we believed about ourselves was that we were behind, is that we were backward, is that if we were around our own people, that might lead to stagnation, right? So of course, we're going to be ashamed. We're going to have lots of internalized racism, which we experience as shame about who we are, our bodies, our social location, our status, 
who we're around, etc. I feel from my own experience that yes, you've got the lens through which, even though I also grew up around Black people and people of color mostly, we're still kind of steeped in this white supremacist media and these ideas about what gayness looks like and how it's expressed. Um, And then I think we go into the gay scene and in my case, my body and how I looked was my currency, right? It was the way Mm -hmm. I gained acceptance and my social Mm -hmm. location changed and, and all of that. So that desire then to always appear in certain ways and not meeting that um, high standard um, mm-hmm. that someone else set and which I keep trying to meet um, mm-hmm. is awful as well. But then mm-hmm. at the same time, I don't want to suggest that it's that we are particularly, and by, I say we, I mean queer men of color, just to be specific to our lived experience. I don't want to suggest that we are kind of like a particularly vulnerable. We live in a world that objectifies and sexualizes women and children. And Yeah, it's particularly tough. I would say that I, I'm also weary of like creating a stark hierarchy of desire or power. Um, and that's because of what you mentioned, the, the language of sexual currency and nuances in our subculture. So for example, if we think about just our bodies outside of gay culture, outside of like our sexual currency. Um, I know that for the most part, um, black men experience more, like they experience more overt racism than I think a lot of South Asian people I know, right? Their bodies are criminalized, they're seen as threats, um, they're more likely to be profiled, etc. However, when we go into, when we think about our sexualized culture, um, I often see black men are desired more than South Asian men, mm. but the struggle that then black men have and South Asian men have is that we, we are forced to interact with white supremacy in an interesting way where we allow them to reduce us to our sexual virility or our sexual prowess or whatever stereotype they have of us. Right. So for example, like you might get hit on a whole lot, but you might also feel like, hey, these guys reduce me to a lot of sexual expectations around my blackness. And I feel stuck or trapped in having to feed that stereotype. Mm. So even if you're doing well in terms of desire and sexual networking, you might still feel like you're interacting with white supremacy in a particular way. For me as a South Asian man, I was just at a party this weekend of Middle Eastern guys. And I said to my friend who is South Asian, and I said, so interesting. Like, I don't think these Middle Eastern guys are into us. Like, it's either they like their own people or they like white guys. And he turned to me and he's like, babe, we don't like each other either. (laughs) And I said, you know what? That's that's true. So the the way I see, in my experience, South Asian men interacting with white supremacy is that we compete with each other a lot. And we desexualize each other. Now, I have no idea if that happens among black men, but I was just thinking about, I've been thinking about this, Mm -hmm. you know, like how do we adjust in this context of white supremacy where we want to be desirable, but for a particular target audience? I think that does happen um, among black men as well, in my experience. Mm. Um, I also think, and this is linked to white supremacy, it's a scarcity complex as well, right? That... Mm. (laughs) 
you know, despite the fact that there actually is not a scarcity of white people, um, there, there's, <laughs> there is like a scarcity, I don't know, I guess related to desire as well. Um, so mm-hmm. to link to your point about competition. But you know, one thing that's interesting, Josh, is that we've got this system of white supremacy. And then within our communities, it plays out in a number of racist ways. There's power play, power hierarchies. And then sometimes as people of color, we might actually feel safer with certain white people because there might be people who were like, oh, this guy has good politics and he provides me with enough distance from my own community to heal some of my community traumas. And so it's it's really tricky. Like I, I'm hesitant right. to be like, oh, all these people of color dating white people, like they're reenacting something bad, right? I want to sure, be cautious about not. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I had a conversation with Alava Dewanja a few years ago, and we were talking about this very thing, this um, this idea that dating outside one's race points to some sort of internalized anti whatever your race is. And Alava said, you know, if that's what you notice, if that's what you uh-huh. think when two people have come together to love each other against the odds, that probably says mm. a lot more about what you think about yourself than about what that couple um, is experiencing or going through. But I, I agree with you. There is mm. a, there is a capacity for transformation and connection as well in those spaces mm-hmm. that, that is not always bad. I feel this way about chemsex as well. Right. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, and I've written privately. Say more. Well, <laughs> you know, vis-a-vis shame, there's this kind mm-hmm. of, um, kind of enduring narrative around chem sex as always only bad. And mm. because I've been in that space for a number of years, like many of us have yeah. encounters with it, I know that it's not true, right? I know that it's not mm-hmm. always bad. Otherwise, people wouldn't continue to find and maintain communities within those spaces. And you see friendships emerging out of these spaces, long friendships. You see mm-hmm. um, confiding joy finding, healing, connection. Um, and all of these yeah. are obscured because it's happening under this kind of um, label of chem sex and there's the attendant shame that comes with and, and, and social ostracization that comes with, you know, drug and sex use that is particular to um, certain mm-hmm. communities. Um, and so I think pushing it back against that narrative to say this, this can't, this there isn't only one way um, of living as queer people and also of, at doing a better job at not pointing at things and kind of projecting our own ideas onto those spaces. Mm. You know, I, I do appreciate that. Um, uh, Here in Toronto or in Ontario, we've had the Gay Men's Sexual Health Alliance that did a whole video series on PNP and it was really to get people's range. And for listeners who don't know what PNP is, that's party and play. Yes. Yeah. And so I really appreciate that. One thing I will say is, you know, when I think about drug using spaces, what I'm curious about is like my scientific brain. I'm like, okay, what are we being allowed to do? And how is a substance facilitating our connection? And why is that difficult to do when we're sober? Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm not saying get rid of the drug. I'm just curious because one of the things that I hypothesize is that substances help alleviate our shame and they help us short circuit some of the internal hierarchies in our community which actually create envy right so there's all this like stuff 
the social stuff that gets stripped away and we're naked and we're high and new things are possible. And I'm curious about that possibility because I want to create it in different ways, even when we're not using, you know, and to bring awareness to what are those barriers? Who do I get to be when I'm using? Yeah, I'm in recovery now. And that's a question that I'm asking myself a lot, particularly around eroticism and desire. You know, um, mm. if my relationship to these spaces and, and to the gay community, really, to be specific, has always been one about sexual serviceability and erotic pursuits. Um, what am I into sexually? What are my desires um, at when mm. that's not in when drugs aren't in play? Right. Um, and so this has been a very interesting journey for me to be on. I often think about the stress that we incur as gay men in particular after we come out, because we're done telling everybody like, hey, I'm gay. And they're done like having a party for us. And now we are have to be gay. <laughs> and part of being gay and participating in community is participating in navigating a fairly sexualized culture. And there's nothing wrong with the sex itself, but we have to figure out where we fit in and we're longing to fit in. And then new issues come up like body image, our sexual performance, um, being desirable, sustaining desirability, not aging. <laughs> and I think substances help with they help us mediate some of those anxieties, right? Totally. And it's not sustainable, of course, right? And there are all sorts of other kind of <laughs> physiological harms that emerge from this kind of attempt at suspending reality, right? Or mm. the realities that we're kind of forced to navigate. Um, you wrote something that really resonated with me um, as part of your series on shame. Uh, you wrote, Quote, in our culture, we believe we can, quote unquote, undo shame in several ways, coming out, forming relationships, seeking and receiving validation, having sex and or reclaiming our autonomy. We take steps that symbolize autonomy and independence. By doing so, we think we've undone a legacy of shame and we have become more of the person we aspire to be. But I would argue that shame leaves an imprint and its residue stays with us. And that really, that affirmed me so much because I've been saying for years, like when I came out, everyone was like, man, we knew, you know, it just wasn't a big deal. And I was like, well, if it wasn't going to be a big deal, why was I sitting on this knot of anger exactly. and shame and fear? And there is no coming out aftercare, right? To your point earlier, you just yes. come out and now you have to figure out how to be gay. <laughs> and so I think that what mm -hmm. we also have is a community full of people who haven't necessarily received the aftercare we need to alleviate that knot that built up in us over a number of years. Yeah. And even though your close friends knew you were gay and that they weren't surprised, the part about it being anticlimactic is actually a bit traumatizing, you know, because you picked up on the possibility of rejection from a very real place. And that was the external world, right? And a lot of that is not about who you want to hold hands with or who you love. When you thought about rejection, you probably thought about masculinity, not being who your parents wanted you to be, not being able to be who your community expected you to be, being uncertain about your own future, and so coming out, it's like, I'm telling you this thing, and maybe you'll give me this aftercare and hold me through this process where you can assure me that I can also have a future, even though it's not mapped out in every TV show, movie, and magazine. 
and then that's like not there. So that's difficult. And I would I would argue that you you probably experience a period of like what I would call ambiguous grief. You know, say more about ambiguous grief. So grief is like our response to loss, right? And in that moment, you didn't lose a person, but you were thinking about maybe losing people or you were hoping to get lots and lots of support and reassurance. And so there's a sadness because something's missing in the response from people. And it's not that you're not being loved, but like a part of you is imagining a kind of love that you could have and it just wasn't there. And nobody did anything bad. And that's what makes the grief ambiguous. You're like, I can't really put my finger on it, but there's a sadness for something that I thought could be. And it didn't articulate what I thought that thing could be. And that makes it ambiguous. Right. Mine was rage. I was ready. <laughs> I remember I picked a fight with my dad after I came out. He wouldn't let me go do something I wanted to do. Yeah. And I, Why don't you admit that you hate having a faggot for a son? Yes. I was like, I literally never said that. <laughs> what are you saying? You know? Um, but and, and so because of the anticlimax, I had built up this anger that I was getting ready to confront the world with, right? You're not going to accept mm-hmm. me for who I am. Here's this. I'm ready for you, though. Yeah. And then I just didn't have anywhere to put it. <laughs> so that's your shame. Just to be clear, oh. that's your shame and the way you protect it because you had internalized this idea that I'm inferior. Your environment wasn't confirming that for you. And so it was very confusing. So to protect yourself or to get affirmation, you attacked somebody else. You picked a fight because you wanted dad to say, you're right, I'm struggling with this. And that would affirm that something is not right with you. Or you wanted him to say, tell me what you think is wrong with you so that I can reassure you. But that's so complex. Even as adults, we can't say that or articulate yeah, that. Yeah. But so you picked a fight with him because you're like, this is the best way I can get proximity to you is to be in a conflict. I had never thought about that moment being a moment of shame. Well, I think the shame was all encompassing. Or an expression and, of shame. Yeah. I think you were carrying it with you. And so what you did was you projected it or you, you turned it into something else. You, you were like, I'm angry with you, but actually you're kind of angry with yourself. And so you need somebody to tell you, hey, I do love you. It's going to be okay. Any day now. No. <laughs> well, so this links to my next question then. So what have you learned through your research and clinical practice and not only your clinical practice, but your, your social um, working about how shame yeah. operates in our communities. So we've just had one example there yeah. of how my shame kind of expressed itself mm-hmm. unbe- unbeknownst to me in that moment when I was 16 and picking a fight mm-hmm. with my dad. Um, how is shame operating in our communities? Well, I think first we have to dismantle the illusion that we can completely get over shame, right? It follows us around. So it's kind of like people are like, you know what? me and my family, we had a bad past and now we get along great. Or we had a terrible past and I cut them off completely. So now they're not in my life. And I'd be like, girl, (laughs) you, you could have in, in all material ways, feel close to your family, or you could say that I've created good boundaries and I've cut them off. I promise you psychologically, you carry the difficulty, the complexity and the trauma of those relationships with you everywhere you go. You recreate them, you reenact them, you want them to be different each time. 
And so let's just give some space for our early experiences and be kind to that earlier version of us, right? So yes, you might've come out, but what world did you come out into? And how did you think about compensating for the negative things you thought you were? So if you thought, I'm going to have to get married, or I'm going to have to have kids, or I'm going to have to get four degrees, or I'm going to do this, that, or the other, you could do those things. Achievement's not bad, but sometimes achievement can be a way that you compensate for a deep-seated sense of shame, right? Or a sense of being inferior. Mm. So I see gay men in particular as like, you know, doing all the things. They want to make lots of money. They want to own property. Um, some of them want to have kids and that's fine and great. And for the ones who don't, the ones who can't get recognized by their families, they go on a cycle of like workaholism, substance use, looking for family, looking for connection. And, you know, I think we have to recognize that a lot of our achievements, a lot of our milestones aren't going to be celebrated in the same way our straight counterparts will have that experience. And so we're always, we're often looking for something, right? And another form of compensation, I think, is our emphasis on youthfulness and muscularity in our community, right? Like, I don't think we want to get old hmm. because we're not sure what that's going to look like or we don't think we're going to have any place in society. If you're in, a, in the straight world and you get older, people think you have wisdom and people look up to you because there's like this norm of having kids and kids having kids. And there's like a, a kinship hierarchy that you automatically fall into. Our gay world doesn't quite have that, right? And I would also say that like so many of us struggled as young gay men around masculinity and to me, I think our obsession with muscularity is about that. I think it's about masculinity. Mm -hmm. We're like, I'm going to stay forever young. I'm going to stay forever desirable. And also, I'm going to only allow myself to be femme if I've got a lot of muscles to, to cover up the femness or to package it. <laughs> so to me, that's all like small pieces of shame, you know? Busy Being Black returns in just a moment. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with social worker, psychotherapist, and community organizer, Raheem Thauer. We're discussing the machinations of shame, with a focus on understanding how dismantling shame requires a collective effort of self-awareness, self-compassion, and kindness. You've written as well that um, you suggest that shame operates in queer men's communities in the following ways. It interferes with desire and pleasure. It shapes our motivation for partner seeking and how we do it and what we look for. And it fuels HIV stigma. Josh, it's 
It's so odd to have you <laughs> read quotes from my work. <laughs> I don't think I've had anyone do that. Um, I mean, I feel like honored, but also, ooh, that's weird. <laughs> um, but I think it's uh, the pleasure and desire stands out for me. Again, I have to keep bringing this up because yeah. I think it's just where I'm at at the moment. Um, you know, I was interviewed as part of a queer men of color gathering at the weekend. And one of the questions I, that was put to me was, what does my idea of queer liberation look like? And, you know, I preface it by saying I'm, I'm in my head a lot and so I'm quite an intellectual envisioner, right? I'm less embodied than, than other people. And so the ideas I have are very much about what queer liberation looks like are very much informed by theory and <laughs> books that I've read mm. versus kind of any real hard praxis. But that part of it is pleasure. And that what I've learned from reading Guy Ockingham and Adrian Marie Brown and Mario Miele yes. is that pleasure has to be an essential like goal and mm. animating thrust of our move towards liberation. And so reading that um, about how shame interferes with pleasure and desire, uh, it occurred to me today that, oh, I didn't think about shame being like an operative barrier um, to our to our liberation in the same way because i think that we think of shame as this thing that happens over here like it's Mm. just kind of it's just a part of life versus it being like an inhibitive part of a larger goal towards liberation and connection so let's talk about for a moment shame how and how it interferes with pleasure and desire because i think we should all have a right to pleasure and pleasure activism has become quite a thing in recent years. Um, If you think your body is inadequate, or if you think you're unworthy of love, um, if you think you're inferior, if you don't think you're desirable, then you're struggling with different kinds of shame. And it's not just you, that you got those messages from the outside world that told you your body had to look a particular way in order for it to be desirable. But how does that interfere with pleasure? Well, you're more likely then to focus on performance and you're going to be more selective with partner seeking because you're going to want to seek people who bring you closer to what you understand power to be, right? So for example, if I hated my brown body, Or I thought, oh, I don't have a six-pack. I hate my fat. The people who I'm going to look for to have proximity to are going to be not brown people, people who don't have any body fat, uh, people who are not me, and people who have always longed to be like. So then this isn't about pleasure. This is about proximity to power because that association makes me feel more adequate. But it's rooted in hating myself, and that hating myself is rooted in a system of ableism and white supremacy and fat phobia. I, when I was in London last year, we missed each other, but I was in London last year, and I, I had this beautiful sexual experience with another brown guy, um, and we just like, like we had a great date, we had great sex, and the next morning we kind of cuddled and we hung out together, and. I said to him the next day, I sent him a message saying, you know, this was so beautiful for me because I just got to think about like brown love Mm. and pleasure and like what it means to desire somebody else and be desired 
and experience touch without thinking about other things. Like, what does this mean? Will you not talk to me afterward? Would you be embarrassed to tell somebody else that you had sex with me? Would you think of me as, like, if you were a white boy, would you go and tell somebody else, oh, I had, like, in, you know, like, oh, like I had sex with another brown guy, which I've, I've met people who, like, uh, they count us as, like, mm-hmm. they're, they're, I don't know, I don't know, they're curry trophies or whatever the hell. And so I'm just like, I love that that wasn't there and I could just be. And that doesn't happen all the time. Sorry, I'm laughing at curry trophy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, I literally have had people say like, oh, my God, you're so hot. And I've slept with four brown people this weekend. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, now I feel like garbage. And I'm judging myself for thinking like, well, it's 2 a.m. Maybe I should hook up with you anyway. It's like you made me feel like garbage. And now I'm judging myself for like maybe wanting to go through with this. I'm like, this whole thing is stupid. <laughs> I'm, for listeners, I'm nodding vigorously because <laughs> experiences like that. <laughs> well, we don't need to get into this. So yeah, <laughs> but we've all we've all been there, right? So. And so, like, it take it takes a certain amount of personal work to be like, I'm not going to desexualize myself and other people that look like me because that comes from a place of shame, and it reinforces white supremacy. Or it doesn't have to just be about whiteness. It could also be about body type and fat phobia, yeah. which is big in our community, right? We think we equate, like we equate body fat with like weakness and laziness and poor choices and poverty. And we equate firm bodies with like discipline, hard work, um, and like we equate it with healthiness. So this is like, it really fucks with our brains <laughs> Yeah. Um, when, we, when we're evaluating ourselves and then who we want to be around. It's just, I'm, I'm just thinking of just the, the perniciousness and the pervasiveness of it all. I'm also thinking about how my desires have shifted over the past few years. I'm holding myself in my head to this impossible standard that there's a there's one standard for me inside myself um, that I absolutely yeah. don't apply to other people, mm. or I don't think I do. Sure, and that's great. <laughs> Sorry, I say that tentatively. I say that tentatively because look, I, I feel like I'm in that category too. But like, babe, if we don't like ourselves or we feel uncomfortable with thinking of ourselves as sexual beings when we gain weight or don't go to the gym, etc. Our partners, particularly long-term people, will feel that. They will internalize that in some way, right? Right. And so it's hard. I'm not, like, it's not easy, but it, it's a hard thing. And I think we just have to recognize that. Can I be truly accepting of others if I'm not truly accepting of myself? And it's hard, right? Because, um, I, I've heard so many people in recent years say, oh, you know, I'm not in the headspace to go to circuit parties. And I'm like, I don't get it. Why? Like, I'm finally back in town. I've been traveling for a couple of years. I'm like, let's go. Let's get turned. Let's dance. Let's do the thing. And people will say, oh, I'm not feeling good about my body. And I'm like, oh, I've never felt good about my body. I thought that's why we did drugs. Like, I thought that was right. like, like, I thought we did that so we could participate in that space. Like, I didn't like, what are you talking about? Um, and then they're like, well, no, I've gained a lot of weight. And like, 
maybe maybe in a few months and i'm like don't you think don't you think if we don't feel good about ourselves that like that's the reason to go together and to take up space like why are we we're reinforcing this idea that that space is only for certain bodies mm. and that's crazy that's crazy because like we're taking care of ourselves in so many other ways like if you gain weight, that meant you had enough money during the pandemic to buy food. Babe, don't be embarrassed about that. Yeah. <laughs> you have a right to eat. Your body has a right to change and you have, you have a right to go dancing with your friends. But like, because of your shame, one of the ways you're protect in this case, protecting yourself against shame is to withdraw, right? Your 13 year old uh, self okay. protected himself against shame by attacking somebody <laughs> right okay i'm understanding more about how shame operates right yeah. so there's a theory called the compass of shame which talks about how we defend against shame to defend against something means to protect yourself right so the four key things according to that theory are attack somebody else withdraw um engage in shame avoiding behaviors so that could be compulsive gym going, workaholism, substance use, something that's shame avoidance. Um, or it could be that you attack yourself. And in our like individualistic, neoliberal, capitalist, meritocratic culture, <laughs> so there's a lot of blah, 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 but in that in that context of hyper individualism, basically what that means, we like to attack ourselves because then we think it's in our control to fix, right? So then we, we think about individual things like having more confidence, going to the gym, reading affirmations, uh, getting a life coach. None of those things are bad, but they're like, they become these highly individual things because we attacked ourselves, which is the individualistic strategy to cope with shame. And it doesn't point to or help dismantle the larger structures that keep kind of perpetuating the images and the behaviors that make us shameful in the first place. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've been smiling all through this because I recognize so much of myself in this in a way that I hadn't before. And so I'm just trying to think about what I've learned or haven't learned about shame that in this conversation with you, I'm hearing. I mean, Josh, I'm happy to send you an invoice for this. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. Okay, tell me, what have you learned? Well, no, I'm, I don't know, because I, I guess what I mean is, what did I think about shame before I came to this conversation? Because this isn't my first time around the shame, at the shame rodeo, but it feels like it is in this conversation. And so I'm just trying mm -hmm. to very quickly, on the fly, trying to go through um, the registers of shame behavior that I've learned. Um, so, for example, when you say... Um, compulsive gym going. I'm at the <laughs> gym six times a week and I'm, I'm open about this with everybody. And I'm never at a, I, I very rarely am happy with what I see in the mirror. It's like, there's, there's always some, yes. something amiss that I need to correct. And so I, yes. it just keeps me going in perpetuity. Um, yes. And I hadn't connected that behavior to shame. I think that's what it is. I don't think I had made the connection between my behaviors and shame per se. So, Josh, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna share um, 
like an analysis or an interpretation with you uh, and forgive me for using diagnostic language, but it's, I think it's, I think it's a useful illustration. Okay. So on the one hand, if I know you one-on-one, I can appreciate that when you focus on something that feels amiss, you're struggling with what clinically we would call body dysmorphia, Mm. right? And I don't mean to give you a diagnosis, but that's the clinical language for it. Now, on an individual level, that's what you are struggling with. On a larger systemic level, people will experience your body as conventionally attractive, as superior, and it will send messages to them about what their body should look like, right? So on the one hand, you have an interpersonal struggle, but also you have access to a certain kind of systemic power. And I'm pointing this out to you because we're both men of color here. And this is the exact thing where we ask our white gay counterparts to do all the time, right? We want to tell them, you have problems in your life, you struggle, your anxiety is real, you have your own traumas, but also we want you to recognize the systemic power you have when you navigate the world, Mm. right? And so I think that distinction is important for us, even in communities of color. When I think about it, for me, I often think about like, I was born in Canada, I speak a certain way, I have a certain kind of credential and education. The, when I think, oh, I'm not experiencing racism or people really like me, like part of that has to do with actual like class privilege and privilege around citizenship. Because I think when I, I think people who have accents who are from the global south, I've seen people dismiss them or not think that they're intelligent or not want to carry on a conversation with them. And I just think about, holy shoot, like, holy shit, like that, that, that there's such a difference there, right? Mm. Um, and so I think I can think about my own interpersonal struggle when I'm like, oh, I don't feel desirable. But also within my own community, I, there is some kind of relative power I have. Yeah. So can we have, because this, your, your comment about the kind of interpersonal struggle versus or connected to the structural power that that interpersonal struggle struggle actually gives me gives one access to um in this kind of weird <laughs> weird way but weird but i was going to think i was thinking illogical but it's totally logical right you you have this yes that's cyclical um so is there can we have a healthy relationship to shame and if so what does that healthy relationship look like or or does the presence of shame point to a dissonance that needs to be resolved? Mm. Well, I think shame needs to be dealt with individually, but also on a community level. So people aren't going to love this, but this like emphasis on asking people to always be confident and to take up more space is hard. If we can recognize that shame operates in insidious ways, instead, when somebody's less confident, we celebrate that too or we invite them into a space instead of expecting them to talk over everybody. (laughs) I think we need to think about how we, like if we're going to decolonize our minds, if we're going to decolonize desire, if we're going to reshape our goals for ourselves and thereby shift how we operate in communities, we need to think about what media we're consuming and who we're surrounding ourselves with because those are our agents of socialization right Mm. we weren't born fat phobic and racist 
we learned those things. So, you know, I think about like, what kind of bodies do I want on my Instagram feed? What kind of porn do I want to watch? Which kinds of guys do I want to go on dates with? I, do I intentionally want to spend more time reading profiles instead of swiping just by how somebody looks? Right? Like, I think we need to challenge ourselves around these things because shame is operating kind of all the time. <laughs> and, and I think we need to think about how it shows up. So one question we also might benefit from acting, asking ourselves is, in what context, place, setting, or in the presence of whom does our shame get activated? And how do we want to manage those situations? How do we want to ask for help? How do we want to be vulnerable? How do we want to take care of ourselves? So I'll give you a quick example. You know, if I'm partying, uh, let's say I'm doing MDMA and I'm dancing, I'm going to feel bolder and I'm going to approach somebody. But if I get rejected or they're not that into me, my shame is absolutely going to be activated. In fact, it's helpful for me to know that it's going to be a white dominated space and my shame's activated in a small way before I even realize it, before I even go to that party. So who am I going to go with? How am I going to take breaks? How am I going to tell myself I want to interpret? And what do I want to say to myself if I do get rejected, right? Like I need to, I need to be prepared to tell myself, it's okay. He's just declined my proposal. He's not that into me. And I'm still a good human. He knows literally nothing about me. He didn't reject me. He just like wasn't into me in this moment. And for me, I need to go armed with these kinds, these like statements of self-talk. Because if I go unprepared, like this angry and pain, like rejected child comes out and then I'm not having fun and I can't go home because I'm not in a headspace too. <laughs> so it's like being, it's like being trapped in a different kind of closet. How terrible is that? <laughs> And so it's it's not necessarily a healthy relationship to shame we're cultivating. It's a healthy relationship to ourselves so that we can be aware of when and how shame shows up so that we can better manage it. With obviously 1, the kind of longer goal of kind of yeah. making shame smaller. So, yes. And for so many people, their shame gets activated when they interact with their family of origin. And you know this because in your daily life, in schema therapy, we talk about this as like, in your daily life, you operate as the healthy adult. And then suddenly, the part that you're responding from is the angry child. <laughs> so you've like regressed to this other headspace. So maybe your shame has been activated. And you're like, what do I need to do to step out of this? Because somebody's making me feel young. I'm feeling targeted. I'm feeling diminished. How do I step away from this and take care of myself? To close our conversation, what would you say to queer people of color searching for ways to cultivate and nurture a softer, tender, more loving relationship with themselves? Let's focus on being kind to one another. And let's be very honest about all the ways we criticize ourselves, all the unrelenting standards we have for ourselves, and start working on self-compassion. If you hate yourself, you really, really are going to struggle with genuinely caring for other people. And you know how RuPaul says, how are you going to love somebody else if you can't love yourself? I actually hate that a little bit because it's true to some degree, but you can't love yourself first, right? 
You have to want to love yourself, but that only happens in connection with other people. You can't go into a closed room and read a bunch of affirmations and then love yourself. You have to have positive relationships with other people. So yes, have self-compassion, but you have to also challenge our hostile culture. And as we do that, we're in a place to dismantle shame. I think for a lot of cis gay men, um, we have a lot of work to do around challenging our own femphobia and transphobia. Um, Because I don't think that's gone away. I don't think we've effectively dealt with that. And um, I think in our culture, we have to recognize that if we struggle with self-compassion, that means that we have a lot of positive beliefs about self-criticism. We've come to think that if we're harder on ourselves, that's going to make us better people. (laughs) Sorry, I'm having like a huge awakening. (laughs) Yes, very much. A positive relationship to self-criticism. Yeah, Yeah. we have positive beliefs Beliefs. about self-criticism. Yeah, Yeah, because we think it's going to motivate us. It's going to make us do better. We're going to push ourselves. But actually, it pushes other people away. It reinforces this idea of competition. It reinforces our unrelenting standards and it individualizes the struggle we're having. Raheem Fower is a psychotherapist, clinical supervisor, writer, and community organizer who examines and practices innovation in queer relationships. He has dedicated almost 10 years to community organizing with Salam Canada, a national volunteer-run LGBTQ Muslim organization. He was also a co-editor and essay contributor in a local history anthology entitled Any Other Way, How Toronto Got Queer. For those who'd like to dive deeper, Raheem has a number of articles on Medium, and you'll find links to his work in the show notes. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. 
the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.